0: Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Well, City Collective Church, uh, what an honor to get to be a part of your gathering this morning, although it's kind of an impromptu digital one. Uh, most of you don't know me, um, or at least don't know me very well, but one of the things you need to know is that you are uh, you are one of the churches that I pray for the most. Um, even though you don't know me, i good friends with Jason and get a lot of opportunity to pray for Jason and to pray for you guys. And uh, you guys have a really deep and special place in my heart. Um, when I know people in Langley that are looking for a church community to be a part of, um, you are often at the top of my list um, because I think what you guys are about and the mission you guys are after, and particularly, I'll say this pretty honestly, the leaders that you have in Jason and Adriana, um, you guys are a great community and I'm very fond of you. So really looking forward to gathering in person and seeing all of you. Um, I'm getting the sense that maybe a few weeks ago, Jason predicted that there'd be a big storm. And so he booked me to be the guest speaker. So he didn't have to go back to being a COVID televangelist. But uh, here I am honored to be with you guys. And I hope one day I'll get to do it with you in person. And I'll quickly say too, some of you might have been around when my wife Tallacy, she's come and spoken a couple times. Jason booked her when she could come in person, but decided to keep me on a camera for some reason. Um, but that's my wife. Uh, usually at a concert, they put the, uh, less good bands first to open for the headliners, but Jason kind of did it backwards and Talcy set the bar really high for me, but it's an honor to be here with you. Um, I get to continue on in your Matthew series, the upside down kingdom that you guys have been, uh, journeying through. And, uh, Jason invited me to, uh, teach from this passage, Matthew five twenty one through 26, which I'm going to read, um, and then we're going to actually zoom out and um, before we dive into it specifically, but this is what Matthew five twenty one through 26 says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Before we hop into the text, I'd love to just invite you guys to pray with me one more time. Jesus, thank you that you not only said these words, but you helped Matthew remember to write them down all those years ago so that today, um, even as I'm joining this community as a guest, we get to lean in and listen to what you're saying to us about your kingdom. So I ask that for all of us who are tuning in and gathering in this way, that you would you would lead us, you would guide us, and you give us ears to hear. You're an amazing God, and we're thankful for the ways that you teach and the ways that you work. Amen. So I want to actually start way back with uh, a passage that if you've been around the church for any amount of time is probably somewhat familiar in Genesis one um, God's, it's kind of gone through this narrative where God's been speaking and all these things have started being created. He just says like light, light happens. He says, you know, animals, they happen, this amazing creation narrative. But at the end of it, there's this really familiar verse Genesis one 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. This idea of being made in the image of God is, um, I think mostly when I hear it is kind of like a, a statement of affirmation. Like someone's like, Oh, you go sis, or you got this bro. You were made in the image of God. You're, you're the image and the reflection of God. Now I do think the statement is quite affirming to think about being made in the image of this, like all powerful God. But over the years, I've spent a lot of time pondering this passage. And when you, stop and ask yourself, what does it really mean that God created people in his image? I I hope, and I would imagine it conjures up a lot of questions. Like you might be like, does that mean like literally like we look like God? You might look at at me and say, yeah, like that could be it. But then you look at someone like Jason and you're like, no, I I don't necessarily think that's it. Um, I've thought about this idea of being made in the image of God a lot over the years. And I'm excited one day to sit down with Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus work this out with me and to learn a lot more about it. However, one of the things that I'm pretty convinced of is that this isn't just a descriptive statement of the state of humankind, but this is actually like a missional or kind of like a commissioning statement that God gives to people in the midst of creation. He creates all these things. And at the pinnacle, he creates people in his image. And I think that idea of being made in the image of God is actually God putting on this mission to his people. And he says, go and bear my image to the nations around you. Go and show people who I am. Go and bring my light into the darkness. Hopefully you were City Collective last week as Jason unpacked this idea of being salt and light and all throughout the old Testament, you see God revealing himself. And that's really the essence in a lot of ways of what I think scripture is about and what creation is about is it's God revealing his character to people. Now, if I were to ask people to describe God, like I'd say, God is blank, fill in the blank. We'd probably come up with a lot of different adjectives. Like God is love. God is compassion. God is kind. Maybe you're more on the, like God is just, God is like powerful kind of side. And I think all of those are true, but most of those describe attributes, you know, kind of characteristics of someone. When we really think about the true nature of God, I think one of the best descriptors that the Bible uses is this word holy. And it's kind of a weird Most of us just use it as like, you know, an exclamatory thing, like, oh, holy, that happened. You know, it's kind of this weird word that sometimes gets thrown around in the church that we don't always know what it means. And one of the, I think, most fundamental understandings of what it means to be holy is just recognizing that there's this broken world and God is untouched by that. God is outside of that. He's not hindered by the brokenness that the world offers. We are, but God isn't. And that's what his holiness is all about. So... I know I'm like kind of going like 30,000 feet in the air. So we'll bring this in a little bit. God creates the universe to reflect his image. He creates people to be people who specifically go and reflect his image to people And, and he writes scripture and he does all these things to reflect his image so that the world can see his character and know him personally. Jason invited me to speak about Matthew 5, 21 to 26, but he asked me to touch on this passage right before it where Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And, and he says, nothing's going to disappear from it until everything's accomplished. And he goes on to say that we need to be people who practice the law and teach the law. Because if we're people who don't and we teach others not to follow it, um, then 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 we're in trouble. And you know, a lot of times in the church nowadays, I think when we think about the law, we're like, oh, it's the Old Testament. The law is really referring to Genesis or Deuteronomy. Those are the books where most of us who started a Bible in a year reading plan this year have kind of like hit Leviticus and you're like, I, I'm out, you know, I'm going to tap out. Maybe next year I'll try for for the rest of this thing. They're they're tough books to read. But really the law isn't just this list of rules that God lays out. And this is why Jesus says, you know, this is a value. I haven't come to abolish it. What the law is, is a representation of. God is. What kind of a God says, don't murder, don't steal. It's not just someone who's trying to keep the order so that people don't lose their things and lose their lives. It's a God who has love and generosity at the core of his being, at the core of his holy being. And this is, I think, really what Jesus is setting up here, because over the next six passages, the next six se- sections that you guys will be journeying through, Jesus is touching on like a different aspect of the law, except the sixth one, when you guys get there, you'll see that it's kind of how people had twisted the law, but really Jesus is unpacking a different aspect of the law He's saying, this isn't gone away. This is still my character on display. And I want to invite you guys in to be my image bearers and to live out the representation of what was said in the law. And he goes on, he says, you got to live that and you got to teach that many of us would say, well, I'm not a teacher of the Bible. You know, I'm, I'm trying to live out the way of Jesus. I'm not a teacher of it. Every single person, who decides to follow Jesus is someone who takes on the mantle of teaching and showing the image of God to the world. We have to move past a church culture or church generation where we have pastors who work at a church and everyone else is, are just the people that like invite a friend to hear about God from the pastor. We're all pastors. We're all the image bearers and we're all doing this ministry together. So Jesus in Matt, in Matthew five seventeen through 20 says the law is important. And it's a reflection of my nature and my character. So live it out. And he actually wraps it up by saying that our righteousness or expression or engagement with that needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So. Anyways, you're like, wow, Ryan, I thought you were talking about Matthew 5, 21 to 26. So let's hop into that. There, are, In our English translation, there are three paragraphs. We want to spend the most time in the first paragraph. Um, the first paragraph is kind of the thesis, um, kind of the main point of what Jesus is talking about. Here he unpacks this point of the law about murder. And then the next two are kind of a, are kind of practical applications. So let's check this out. Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Jesus is going to have that kind of a statement at the start of a lot of these passages because he's referring back to ancient teachings, namely that of the law found in the Bible. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I think all of us can probably get on board with that. Like, that's pretty, like, yeah, that's great. One thing that's interesting about the language that Jesus uses here is, if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament's actually pretty... Um, There are a lot of specific things in it and there isn't just murder and like not killing people, but there are a lot of expressions. Like there's like workplace accidents. There's like accidental, there's self-defense. There are all these things. The language Jesus is using here is actually probably most likely most scholars would say like really an expression of like what we would call first degree murder. This is like evil, vile, selfish taking of someone's life for our own personal gain, or just because we're angry. So Jesus says, you will not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Oh man, anybody out there, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old daughter. Anybody out there with little kids is like, we're never allowed to get angry. And you've got, you're like, Jesus, it's easy for you to say you didn't have little kids, right? It's like, that's a, that's a tall order. You can't even be angry with people. And now I think a lot of times what people will do with this would be like, yeah, like anger is kind of like murder because they're both mean and they both hurt people, but murder is actually worse. And I don't think Jesus is drawing a comparison to say, this is kind of like this. I think what he's expressing is that these are actually fundamentally at their core, the same thing. Here's an example, many of you out there watching. Uh, own a cat. I don't own a cat, but many of you own a cat. So you've decided to bring this animal into your house and you like pay for all the expenses of having them and you pay for the expenses of repairing your house after they tear it to shreds and, and all these things. Now, in my mind, there are two different kinds of cats that people own. There's a good cat and there's what I call a broken cat. The good cat is that cat that does what a cat that you own should do. They come, they snuggle with you. They purr when you pet them, they're loving, they're affectionate. A broken cat and some of you guys own one of these and totally up to you no judgment but like blows my mind that those cats that like they hide and they want to be by themselves and when you do try to pet them they swat at you and they bite you I I remember I had a friend that had a cat like that and one time I tried to pet his cat and the cat like bit me you know he like swatted at me and he bit me and they're all laughing like ah, it's cute you know this little cat and I I think about it's like the only reason it's cute is because of the size of the cat really What's the difference between that little house cat and a lion biting me? It's just the size. I don't think the intention, what's at the heart of what the cat is doing. is If that cat was 20 times the size, like the size of a lion, it would be eating me. That's what that is. It's not cute. So imagine I go to someone's house and they've got a pet lion and the lion like swats at me and bites at me and they're like, oh, that's cute. I'm like, no, I, I'm missing an arm right now. You know, that's what Jesus is doing with. Murder and hatred here, or anger—is he saying, you know, while while murder might be like a branch on the tree, it might be an expression of this thing. What it is is it's this expression of the seed that's been sown in your heart—that is anger, that is hatred, that is malice. And oh, it's pretty easy in our culture for us to have those seeds in our hearts, like me included, to have those seeds in our hearts, and to express them in ways that are societally acceptable, and to kind of look at this and be like, well, I'm not a murderer, but. And to justify the anger and the hatred that we have for others. Jesus unpacks this a little bit further. And he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Many of you might read this and like, okay, sweet. I don't think I've said Raka this past week. So like I'm in the clear and, and they're kind of two levels here. These are two Aramaic terms, Raka and you fool. You fool, are real English words, it's a rendering of an Aramaic term and Raka is just the court, but you fool is hell. And this is what these terms mean. Raka means like you're empty headed. Really, it means you're dumb, you're incapable, you're not good at stuff. Maybe you're ugly. Um, You know, the ways that we usually look down on people, like this person's not very capable. This person's not competent. They're not good at stuff. It's where we judge and look down on people's competency. And Jesus says, don't insult people like that. And, And I think one of the reasons is because when we insult someone, we're not, insulting someone and when we look down on someone we're not looking down on someone what we're doing is we're looking down on the image of god right like so if you insult uh i'm in jason's uh living room right now you guys can't see it there's a painting on the wall if i'm like oh jason that painting's ugly it's kind of insulting to jason who it's really is insulting to is the painter or the art. hopefully it's not jason because now we're friends off but it's insulting the painter or the artist and, and that's one thing but the next thing that you fool if if saying that if is like saying you're empty headed, you aren't good at stuff. You're not smart. You're not capable. If it's an affront on someone's competency and capability, you fool is actually an assault on someone's character. It really means godless one. It's taking that place of looking down in a judgmental way on someone and being angry with someone and, and judging their character as someone who's vile or evil. There's a bit of a tension here because in the church, we should be offering form of judgment and accountability that looks a lot like, you know, Hey man, you know, we've been journeying for a while together, I've noticed some of these things in your life and I want to challenge you on those because I don't know if this is what's kind of like, if this is really what you're after and what Jesus is trying to pull out of your life. And and that's one thing because that's a loving, hopeful way to help someone grow forward. What anger and hatred is, is it's trying to tear someone down. Now the Bible's expressions of righteous anger and I. I thought about spending some time digging into that, but I don't want to, I don't know if there's really a lot of time, but there are moments when there's injustice in the world to be angry and all that. But what this is really talking about is the type of human anger that's about getting ahead or getting what's fair for us or being offended and insulted by people. And we live in a culture of being highly offended in James. James writes something like human anger. So man's anger, the type of anger that isn't rooted in the holy righteousness of God Um, that type of anger does not bring about the righteousness God desires. Jesus has just said in Matthew 5 20, let your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law Well, living an angry life, insulting those made in the image of God and trying to be the one in the place of judgment over people and judging their character doesn't line up with this. In fact, in James, he also says there's one lawgiver and one judge it's pretty easy for us to want to judge people's character and feel like we know everything about them. You know, we read online, someone tweeted something we didn't like, or, you know, someone who's listens to podcasts on the wrong platform and you're offended by that. Or, you know, there are things that are inexcusable, obviously been in the world, but like little things, we see these little expressions and we just feel like we know people. I often have people say, you know, what do you think about like what this celebrity said or this politician or whatever? My ex- response is usually, I don't know. Like I'd, I've never met them. When it comes to that type of judgment, Jesus is saying to us, the seat's taken, you know, I'm the one that sits on that seat of judgment and I will judge people's hearts. For now, it's your job to try to engage people in a meaningful way to root out hatred, to root out anger in our world. There's this expression that says, hate is a strong word in our world. And I actually think that's the opposite of what's true. I think hate doesn't take much strength at all. I think about Jesus sitting silently as people falsely accuse him of all kinds of things. I think about Jesus silently just getting hung on a cross. And the only time he opens his mouth in that scenario is to say, Hey, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He could be like, for sure he could be judging them and all that. Oh man. I, I like that wouldn't be me in that scenario. I'd be spewing like, Oh, I'd be ripping these guys apart, like verbally and all that. Jesus goes on, some practical advice. He says, therefore, because we've just read this thing, we're not so angry, so what? He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first, go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. Um, this idea of offering your gift at the altar is an ancient form of worship and we don't really do that now, but... It's, it's what Jesus is using as a scenario where you're in the middle of something that's like, you you really can't interrupt, you know, like there are a lot of parts of your day that maybe could be interrupted. You're chilling at home on a Saturday and someone interrupts you with something. It's not a big deal. Think about like, if you're at work, that's a little bit more uninterruptible. What Jesus is using is like an example that would be kind of like saying, imagine on your wedding day, the pastor looks at you and your future spouse and is like, Do you take this person to be your husband or wife? And in that moment, you're like, oh man, wait a second. I think someone's angry with me. Can you just hold up, hold on a second, guys, you know, little flower girls coming down the aisle. You're like, hey, just pause. You know, it's cute. But like, hold on, I got to go deal with this thing. Jesus' example is a hyperbole. He was saying, no matter what you're doing. Like this is of utmost importance. He's saying that the priority in life should be reconciliation. And this is because the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. God created a world that was already in harmony and union with him. And a couple chapters in, it gets messed up by the people that are supposed to represent that image and reflect that image of love and unity and harmony and from then god sets out on this mission of reconciliation where he's pursuing his wayward bride and pursuing with all the heart and passion of reconciliation possible and so he says if you want to walk in my way then go no matter what and he says do it now like leave it right now and so it's kind of a cheesy expression but one of the ways I've summed this up to kind of remember in my mind is I always say don't wait a while reconcile. And it's been such a helpful mantra for me because it's so easy to be like, well, you know, they're the one that did this and it should be on them to do this or I'm, you know, I got these things going on, maybe if the and there's so many reasons for us to put off that hard conversation because it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and we live in a world where it's this, that tells us that it's okay to tear down those who have been bad. I mean, think about people, you know, who go through a bad breakup or a bad divorce. I mean, they're like applauded to sit around and talk trash about the, about the other reflection of God's image that they've divorced from. And I'm not saying it's not hard, but I'm saying that those types of words are like poison to our own souls. Jesus isn't just concerned about the person who's on the receiving end of our anger and our hatred. He's worried about our own souls that decay as we speak that way about his children. Something I love last week that Jason said, um, when he's talking about salt and light, this idea of salt being this thing that like preserves and brings life and vitality to this world is, um, he's talking about, you know, progress and progress being often measured in a world by what we do rather than who we are. And I love that idea because really what Jesus calls us to be are those reflections of him. Those people who represent his reconciliation to the world. Paul writes about this in second Corinthians five. He says, we're God's ambassadors. You're the window that people look through to see the nature and the character of God. You're the book that people are reading to learn about who God is. Hopefully people also one day read the Bible because it's an even better book than your life, but my life too, but not just yours, but man, we, we've we got this mantle to do this. So Jesus says, don't wait a while, reconcile. And he's not like, if it's you that did the thing, then go reconcile, or if it's them. or the, He just says, if there's something jacked up, go reconcile. And then he goes on, and he goes into something pretty specific here. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. That is, like, way too specific to not have happened, you know? Like, that's like, wow, Jesus, you really, like, calculated this. One thing, one of the things I love about the Gospels, it's not just this theological concept. Like, there is this, the, the most important thing is a spiritual renewal, being, brought back into right relationship with God. But I think God actually cares about what practically happens in our lives too. And here's a way in Jesus's culture of him practically saying, if you leave unreconciled relationships in your life, if you leave strife and anger and hatred between you and others, it's going to get you, it's going to jack you up. It's going to cause issues in your life. And we've all seen it. We've all experienced it. We've all been hurt by people. We've hurt others and there's always collateral damage. It hurts others creates issues. Yet for some reason, I still struggle. I still continue to like allow brokenness to come in and allow brokenness to set. And Jesus says, man, like someone's dragging you to court. Someone's like trying to get you thrown into jail and drain your bank account. In that moment, just do what you can to reconcile. One of the things we know about reconciliation is that in a sense, it's not always possible. Um, I've had situations in my life where, um, and, and even in the church where there's been brokenness and you know, you reach out and you try to reconcile and it's not received. And that's, that's just the reality of a broken world. I don't think what Jesus is teaching here is, uh, like that you have to fix everything, but you have to be the person that is willing to fix everything, no matter what it costs you. I think a lot of what we can do in the church nowadays is we try to like manage our sin and dilute it in the sense of like, if you think about a glass of water with a little bit of cyanide in it, none of us would just add more water before we drink it. We would want to get rid of the glass with a bit of cyanide. Well, if you do, then love to talk to you about that because would advise against it. But, you know, we get rid of the glass of water with cyanide in it and we refresh it. And that's what we often do with this. So I think many of us would work this out this way. We would think, okay, Jesus says reconcile or, you know, love people, don't hate people, don't be angry, you know, don't say at you fool. And we think about the 97% of the relationships in our life where we've done that well, and that's going well. And that's usually the lower hanging fruit. while well, we let one or two or 3% sit broken and unchecked. And we have a lot of ways to excuse that. We can be like, well, but, you know, this circumstance or that situation. And that's often how we look At a lot of brokenness in our lives as we look at our own brokenness through the situation. I was tired that day or, you know, this happened. They don't know what I'm going through. But when someone else messes up, we just judge their character. We say stuff out of line all the time and we can understand why we did that. But when someone else does it, we're like, oh, this person's, this person's jerk, one bad tweet, one bad, this one. And, and I think Jesus would say, I'm not looking for like a 97% gospel. I love the mission statement at city collective. uh, If you don't know it. It goes, I think like this, hopefully I don't butcher it, but together creating space for everyone to experience life in Jesus, everyone to experience life in Jesus, not just the 97%. We can't create space for everyone. If we're the ones holding on to grudges and we're the ones holding on to anger and hatred, I think about it this way with my own kids. I love both of my daughters. Uh, They're wonderful. One of them, if she comes into the room and goes and punches the other one in the face and then hops on my lap and is like, Dad, I love you so much. I mean, I like that she'll say she loves me and hops on my lap and hugs me, but I'll still be pretty aware of the fact that she punched my daughter in the face. Even if you had 10 kids and your kid came in and punched a few of them, I'm really sorry if you have 10 kids, that sounds wild Two seems unmanageable to unmanage, unmanageable to me. I can't say a word, but if you had 10 kids and one comes in and punches two of them in the face and hugs and all of them, and and it's great that like 80, 90% of that is in check, but you would say, I still need you to go and repair with that child. And again, Jesus doesn't just say this because it's like good for us. And he wants to keep the order in check but because of who we need to repair with. This planet has not 8 billion people on it. This planet has 8 billion children of God made in the image of God. And God says, treat those people the way I treat them. Treat those people the way I treat you. I bring you reconciliation, even in your darkest moments. Jesus leaves his gift at the altar. He leaves whatever's going on and he brings that to us. What one last thought, um, I had this idea a little while ago that, Um, construction workers and demolition workers kind of look the same as each other. Um, They wear the same kind of gear, the same kind of like reflective vest. A lot of times a hard hat. They even use a lot of the same tools. I mean, most construction sites that are building houses don't use wrecking balls to build houses, but like they use a lot of the same tools. They look the same. And I think that's can be true for church people as well. We can show up on a Sunday and we can, put on display the 97% that's going well in our lives. We can sing the songs. We can listen to the messages. We can do all the things. And what Jesus is speaking at here is that two, three, maybe for some of us five or 10% in our life where he says, you need to let go of the bitterness and the brokenness. And sometimes that comes with a really hard, awkward conversation. Sometimes we're not able to fix that. And that's okay. One thing Jason said last week is that being a peacemaker and being salt and light isn't about this cultural niceness that we often are sucked into. I'm convinced that nowadays one of the, big challenges that the church is facing is that we're trying to nice people in the, into the kingdom of heaven. We take an idea that Jesus says, go love people. And then we take a cultural definition to define that. And we say, okay, we'll take one of the fav- our favorite parts of culture. Like everyone in our world is nice. I don't know if you can see this on the camera right now, but I've had a broken ankle for six weeks. I'm like crutching around. I'm terrible on crutches. I'm really clumsy. I almost died in the snow coming in here this morning, or maybe broke my other ankle or something. But Everyone everywhere opens doors for me on my crutches, like everyone's nice, Um, you know, and when someone opens a door for me at the store, I'm not like, oh, you must be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, you know, it's just like people in our culture are like, we're generally kind of nice, like not always, you know, like you're driving in the snow, you realize people aren't as nice in those moments, but like people are nice. So being a follower of Jesus doesn't just mean adapting a mainstream part of our culture and doing that. That's the problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is they're adapting cultural ideas and painting that as a religious practice in the way of Jesus, we're trying to nice people into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm concerned that we're actually nice people into the pits of hell because we are giving them a false gospel by showing them that if we're nice, we're reflecting the character of Jesus. Jesus would say, go have those hard, awkward, challenging conversations. Maybe you're joining us this morning or whenever you are online and you know, there's some like jacked up broken relationships in your world and it's tough and it's scary and it should totally be on that person to reach out and reconcile. But I'd ask you, could you start praying for that person now? Could you reach out? Could you have that hard conversation in Romans 12? Paul says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not possible to fix all the situations. Some people will reject the reconciliation efforts, but Paul just says, if it's possible, as much as it's on your part. So at the end of my life, my hope will be this, Hey Jesus, there were some unreconciled relationships, but in a sense I could say, you know, it's not me. It's them And, and genuinely I'd say, I made the effort like you did. I, my model was you crawling up on a cross, looking at people with forgiveness and compassion. I made the effort. I didn't wait a while. I made efforts to reconcile. So it's been great joining you guys, City Collective, and I'm glad that I could do this with you this morning. I can't wait to come hang out in person one day, and I'd love to just pray for you as we wrap up. Jesus, you're so good, and we love you, and thank you that you are this brilliant example of what it means to care deeply about reconciliation, to look at people who are who treat you so wrongly who break that relationship all the time. We're so wayward and we turn away from you all that time and you still extend that hand of reconciliation. Please, as each of us gather around this text this morning, please convict us of those spaces where we need to lean into that and inspire us and empower us to be people who live that out. This requires a lot of courage and a lot of strength. And Certainly you have a lot more of that to offer than we ever will says, so ask that you'd give us a little bit extra of that this week as we think about who we might need to reach out to and reconcile with. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much city collective. So good to be with you this morning. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.